Um, so, Steve, first question. Um, you've just recently published your new book, The New Economics, A Manifesto. What inspired you to write this book? Well, interestingly enough, it was actually a request from my then publisher, who's uh, George Owens, who is a member of uh, Polity Press. He, was, uh, he came to my inaugural speech in Kingston, which was three, took a place like almost three years after I started there, but he turned, he came down from Oxford to listen and then uh, lobbied me to write, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? And after I'd done that, he then approached me to write for a series called uh, Discipline X Matters Because, which was an introductory book for school, for school kids. And I said, look, I'm just not the right person to write that book. You know, I don't want people to learn mainstream economics. But he continued lobbying me and obviously it became a personal project to make me write what you might call a mini manifesto or a mini magnum opus, a mini opus of my views on economics. And uh, so I, what I, re I realised once that was the, um, uh, the bailiwick that he'd given me, I wrote a 25,000-word uh, concise uh, overview of the sort of economics that I think we need um, to avoid, well, the sort of economics we should have had, which could have helped us avoid the economic crises, I think, uh, the ecological crises I think we're going to have. So um, it's ineffective. I never got to write my magnum opus. This is my mini opus. The, the neoclassical school, it became dominant in the 1870s. Do you think the uh -huh. concept of equilibrium, which espouses, the, uh, espouses what can be possible in the fiat currency world, filled with almost 8 billion people who have free will, you know, is, is that, yeah, is that is the heart of the of the problem? <laughs> well, the heart of the problem is we have a form of economics which became dominant in the 1870s, which is not physical. It's a, it's ethereal. It's uh, all about maximising human utility. Um, and, and, and that uh, focus is the completely the wrong focus for understanding the biophysical processes that enable us to establish an economy on this planet. Um, and when you look at where it originated from, it was really in response to the classical school of economics, which Marx had turned from a defence of capitalism against feudalism to an attack on, on, feud, on capitalism uh, with an eye towards a socialist future. So we got this um, immediate flip in the 1870s, what used to be a, an underground view about you know, utility maximisation being the purpose of capitalism that you could find in writers like Jean-Baptiste Say and, uh, and Augustin Corneau but it was always a fringe view. That became the dominant view in the 1870s. And then we had this elaborate mathematical model of utility maximisation taking over how we think about the economy. And it completely, at a fundamental level, it completely ignores the physical aspects of, of producing goods and services on this planet using free energy, which is what we actually do. Um, it was, so it's a, it's a metaphysical rather than a biophysical model of the economy and we've blithely continued down 150 years of swallowing that as a view of how the economy works and consequently we've ignored um, the physical limits that we face on this planet and I think we're going to pay for those in a social collapse in the next 10 to 30 years. So it, it's something which it didn't have to happen. It wasn't a necessity that we got this view of economics but because we did we're now I think completely unequipped to face the physical challenges we that we are going to encounter in the next 30 years. Another thing that you point out in the book as well is that the econ history of economics is not taught very much in, uh, in mainstream economics courses. And in your uh, book, um, you know, the, the, the also the problem seems to be the interpretation. So, for example, in your book, 
you talk about how the neoclassicals thought that they'd taken um, some uh, thinking about ob the objective theory of value was ignored by them. Um, can you explain some of this uh, to our audience? Well, I'll go, I'll go back a long way because if you, you remember the final part of the book, the person I actually criticised for the state of modern economics is Adam Smith. <clears throat> and the reason for that is not that Smith gave us what we have these days because Smith's view, approach to economics was completely different to what the neoclassicals do in every possible way. Uh, but what Smith did was basically sabotage the economics of the physiocrats who preceded him. And the physiocrats began from the perspective that the source of all wealth is land. And what they meant by land was really solar radiation. They said we wouldn't have agriculture without the sun. Nobody made the sun. The sun was just there. So we're exploiting this free energy source. And then that is a source of human wealth. And that fundamentally is spot on. Uh, and, and with that perspective, it means that what you and I consume, what, uh, what uh, the, the physical goods that are fought over in the, in the battles over the distribution of income between workers and capitalists, et cetera, et cetera, they are all effectively gifts of the free energy of the sun that human ingenuity has turned into products. So that's what we should have done. But instead, Mark, uh, Smith said, oh, no, all value comes from labour, fundamentally. And we then got caught in the value wars. Does labor, is labor the source of value? Is, machine, is capital the source of value? The neoclassicals say it's increasing utility that's the source of value, et cetera, et cetera. All this stuff is irrelevant to the real world. And we've spent literally a quarter of a millennium caught in these battles between leftists at one extreme who take Marx's labor theory of value um, to neoclassicals at the other who talk about utility maximization and so on. They're both irrelevant fundamentally, to the physical world in which we live. So we've, we've had a completely wrong foundation for economics. And what I argue at the end of the book is we should have started from the physiocrats who would have given us a biophysical approach to economics from which we could have understood there were limits to growth and we have to stay within the, those planetary boundaries. And instead, because we haven't done it uh, and we've followed this neoclassical delusion that you can have uh, infinite growth on a finite planet, we're now... I think we're well past over, we're well gone past the sustainable level of human production on the planet. We now face a period of decline, whether we want to do that or not. And in this situation, the worst possible way you can think about the economy is the neoclassical way. It's got to go. And that's the large argument of the book. We need an alternative way to think about the economy that is biophysical, that understands money. Um, and, and that's what I, I'll outline how that can be done in the book. You also point out in the book as well that the this vision of the market as being a, a, a utopian concept, mm -hmm. um, you know, and as as a as a great moderator, um, you know that everything will be sorted out by the market. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you think that we we can ex we can go about expunging that that thinking? I, I think the simplest question, way to do that with anybody is saying, what, what price of carbon dioxide will stop the melting of Antarctica? Yeah. Okay. Now, you ask a question like that, and they, hopefully you get a period of crossover saying, what do you mean? And the answer is, I mean, the market can't work that out. Okay? That is something which, which depends upon the, the biophysical interactions our human industry makes with, with the biosphere. And you, you cannot work out a price of carbon that won't allow, won't, will mean that doesn't happen. It's, it's simply ridiculous to think that way. So we have to step away from the market and say, 
how do we how do we think about the the uh, sustainability of our society it must be in relation to the biophysical constraints of the planet and when we do that and you say well what have we done about those constraints the answer will have blasted right through them and so i uh, I, I, mean, I have a very pessimistic view of what's going to happen in humanity in the next 30 years i think it's touch and go to whether human society will survive what we're going through we wouldn't have got here in the first place if we didn't have a delusional theory of economics fundamentally telling us we can go on indefinitely yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you also rebelled against this neoclassical vision at university. Do you want to mm. tell our audience a wee bit more about that? Yeah, well, I was a believer in all this supply and demand stuff uh, back when I was a school student. So if this, if this, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm going to offend people who are, you know, 30, 40 years younger than me, 50 years younger pretty much these days. But what I got taught at school in the, the 1960s was equivalent to a first year university course today, maybe even second year. The, the, the subject was that much tougher uh, back before the degradation of education over the last 30 years, ever since we started having employment crises, which I date from the, the mid seventies. But so I believed all this stuff, you know, equilibrium and et cetera, et cetera. But the, the one thing that I, I remember as a school student that I was disappointed with, with the economics I learned at the university is that I'd been exposed to Rostow's theory of growth by a brilliant high school teacher I had. And that was fundamentally differential equations, rates of change of this causing the <clears throat> values of another system which caused rates of change, fundamentally a system dynamics view. And I was studying that in mathematics at the same time I was doing my <clears throat> undergraduate education in economics and it wasn't turning up in the mainstream lectures. I was disappointed by that. But it was still, I, I believe, the whole supply and demand framework. And then... In the second of three terms, we had a new lecturer called Frank Stilwell, who was, uh, I, I, he's, a, he's an Englishman, I'm not quite so part of England he's from, I think he might be a Lancashire. Uh, but Frank himself had gone through the um, transformation of, of believing neoclassical economics and then rejecting it. And he then gave us a lecture on what's called the theory of the second best. And this was the theory that said that if you were two steps away from what neoclassical economics would call nirvana, then getting one step closer actually would make you worse off. And the example that Frank gave was if you have the, the, the theory of wage settings is that workers receive their marginal product, and that that's um, a, a socially just wage. It's just for the worker and it's just for the capitalist who's paying the wage. Um, but that applies if you have perfect competition amongst employers and workers are uh, competing with each other as well. So there's no unions and there's no monopolies or no market power. Now, in the real world, of course, there are both. So using a theory of the second best and using conventional economic concepts of what's called monopoly and monopsony uh, and showing where the equilibrium points are, where you have a monopolist facing monopsonist, a monopolist facing competitive uh, uh, buyers, a, monops a monopoly seller facing competitive buyers, et cetera, et cetera. If you go from the monopoly... Um, buyer of labour and monopsity seller, so an industrial organisation by employers, trade union by workers. If you abolish that, one or the other, you make welfare, socially welfare, provably worse, according to neoclassical theory. And I remember learning that and just sitting bolt upright in the lecture theatre thinking, hang on a second, I've been taught that perfect competition everywhere is the best possible system. This is now a realistic 
uh, statement of where we are now and saying taking one step towards that, like, for example, abolishing trade unions, which has always been a major emphasis of mainstream economics, would make welfare worse. There's got to be something wrong with the theory if this happens. So I went down to um, the library, didn't trust my, my textbook anymore because this, this theory wasn't in the textbook, found the article Frank was working on, read the whole thing. I could easily handle the mathematics. Uh, and then thought, well, what else am I not being taught? So I got the latest issue of the economic journal that was bound in the library at the time. It was actually the 1966 edition. And there's an article in the economic journal by Paul Samuelson called A Summing Up, where he conceded that the neoclassical theory of the of capital and therefore income distribution was wrong. I thought, that's not my textbook either. What's going on here? So I rapidly became disillusioned with mainstream economics. And then in 90, two years after that, as it happens, uh, there was a student revolt at the university over the teaching of feminist philosophy. And they had a conservative professor of philosophy who was trying to stop it. The staff wanted to put the course on. They called a strike. And in the middle of that strike, I, I joined with a number of others and said, let's have a strike over economics as well. That began in Ju July of 1973. And in that strike, we basically overthrew the department and the university agreed to form a department of political economy as well as the department of mainstream economics. Um, so I helped lead that successful revolution against how economics was taught. But of course, we won the, we won the battle, we lost the war. And in every other university in the world, the same old neoclassical nonsense continued being pumped out, which is why ultimately I became an academic and came back and tried to fight it in the source. Yeah, no, from the audience. Yes, have you got any questions from the audience? Yeah, yeah, so we've got one one here. Um, <coughs> holding on to that idea of neoclassical economics, saying that growth can continue in perpetuity, we've got a really good question that says, yeah, maybe, but what happens when the rare earth, uh, rare earth materials run out? Well, this is the thing. I mean, all this stuff is running out right now. There's actually a brilliant Australian engineer who's currently working in Finland called Simon Michau, M-I-C-H-A-U-X, and Simon Hashbury, search that name, Simon Michau, M-I-C-H-A-U-X. You'll find his publications from the Geological Survey of Finland. And they answer that question. And what you find is a whole range of elements, not just rare earths, but a whole range of essential elements, which are already in very, very short supply. And one of the scariest of the lot is actually phosphorus. Being because phosphorus is, is such an essential element to, to biological life on the planet. And when you move a muscle, and, and uh, Karen would know this very well, when you move a muscle, the chemical in your body that is enabling that to move is called adenosine triphosphate, and it changes into adenosine diphosphate, <coughs> or, or biodi I think it's called diphosphate, and water and, and carbon dioxide. And if you don't have phosphate, you can't use your muscles. Now, believe it or not, we're starting to run out of phosphate. There's a very good table on the periodic table where Simon shows this. Uh, so we have an, an, we are facing all sorts of fundamental shortages of essential inputs in the really in the next 10 to 30 years. And so that alone is going to cripple our capacity to produce on this planet, certainly to produce to maintain the living standards of the 8 billion people we currently have. And the thought that this can go on and further is delusional. Yeah, um, and that's also very topical right now because, as you know, we have a war in Ukraine at the moment yeah. and um, a lot of the phosphorus that the farming industry has been using across the world is supplied by Russia.
Um, the, the, going back to your rebellion at university, there has uh -huh. been a couple more rebellions since then. There was one in Manchester, I think, and also one in yep. Paris. So there, there is, there's starting to be a movement in academia. You know, is it, is it, is it building into something that's really going to bring change? Um, do you think that's going to end up in policy circles and affecting politicians much more? Um, it's, it's got some potential to do that. I mean, I've got to say the Manchester thing is an interesting link because Manchester is the university from which the vice chancellor of Sydney University came back in the 1970s. And he was a mainstream economist. Her name is Bruce Williams. And Bruce uh, eliminated the effectively humanist course in economics that used to be taught at Sydney University in 1968 and installed two conservative neoclassical professors to run the department, which was what caused the anger at the university that I walked into unknowingly in 1971. And then in 73, the strike began and, and so on. So to have Manchester again being the first centre where what's called the post-crash economic society sprung up, and out of that you've got the Rethinking Economics Group and so on and a whole range of, of, uh, of protest groups by students around the world. That is new. We've never had anything like that before. So the, the battle that I helped, that I've led with two others, I was, it was a triumvirate, rate, wasn't just me, uh, but there were three main leaders in that group that, that struggled back at, uh, in Sydney University in 1973. Uh, well, we just disappeared in, in that sense. I was the only one of, that, one of two of that group to go on to be, become an academic. So it basically died uh, a death. Uh, ditto for the Paris students. That was called the Post-Autistic Economics Society, and that spawned a journal, the Real World Economics Review, but nothing else really apart from that. Manchester, which gave us personally post-crash and then rethinking economics, that's had a continuing momentum, and it's been helped by groups like the Institute for New Economic Thinking, the group that George Soros funds, um, where he's established what's called the Young, Young Scholars Initiative, and that's continuing to provide funding for non-neoclassical uh, groups of students around the world to continue looking at alternative approaches. So that gives me a certain amount of hope, um, and, and, and they're not going to go away. So those groups will be there. If you find yourself a disgruntled student studying neoclassical economics, look for a rethinking economics group nearby, you'll find there probably is one. You'll find people feel the same way you do about the stuff. So that's something which didn't exist uh, except at Sydney University uh, for any time before 2009. So that gives me some hope. I know as well that some of the uh, government departments and some uh, international bodies are appointing non-neoclassical academics, non-neoclassical graduates at some point. So there's some hope there. But it's still pushing shit uphill because the neoclassicals dominate virtually everything. And like, for example, in the OECD, um, the, I, the, I know that the neoclassicals are, are fighting back against the trend to have non-orthodox economists presenting there. So it is always an incredible defence of the religion of neoclassical economics by the mainstream. And it'll always be a struggle, but it's a struggle we have to engage in. I read actually in your book that the OECD does seem to be trying to bring in the thinking from other disciplines into economics, you know, thinking from science, thinking from uh, uh, engineering, physics. Uh, where is that happening then? It's still happening. It's called the New Approaches to Economic Challenges. It's part of the OECD. I have to say the current head of the OECD, who's an Australian conservative politician, 
uh, is not particularly fond of that group, so they're, you know, they're finding themselves under some pressure. Uh, they're trying to maintain the case that if you want to have, uh, if, you, if, there's a, if you need a change in the paradigm, then you're not going to get the change in the paradigm from the current believers in the current paradigm. And that's not something you criticise economists for. This is something that Max Planck realised in physics way back in the um, turn of the 1900s when he developed quantum mechanics and he tried to explain that to his fellow Maxwellian physicists. None of them could accept it. And Max then finally said that he summarised himself by saying history, a science advances one funeral at a time. And the long version of that was that you can't expect the old people to change their minds and believe in a new paradigm, you've got to hope for the young to come through and change that paradigm. But in economics, that doesn't happen, and I argue this in the book as well, because the, the, the crises in economics are transitory. The Great Depression, it's over. The Second World War, it's over. The period of, of the, what's called the golden age of capitalism, that's over. The inflationary period, that's over. We go through these crises, another crisis comes along, but in the meantime, the mainstream can still find people, enough people who believe in this wonderful vision of a self-equilibrating economy that mainstream economics teaches to replace them. And they never get that replacement of a new cohort of students. And in the case of physics, all of whom know that they've got to go from Maxwell to quantum mechanics, or all of whom know that there's some hole in the theory of astronomy and so on. So economics doesn't reform itself in the same way that other disciplines do. And that's why I think we have to bring as much as we can thought from outside, which means engineers and so on. Yeah, I'm just going to check back with William. Do we have any more questions from the audience? Yeah, just that, that really good comment by Hashbury Stumble there, always keep your mind open. And Steve, I, I wonder if you would agree that um, econ economics and economists have pretty much a closed mind to to, to not just not just economics, but kind of anything that goes contrary to their view, including from other scientists. Oh, totally. Scientists. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the way they've approached climate change. And it is, I mean, I have to say their work on climate change is disgusting. It's the worst work I've read in 50 years of being a critic of mainstream economics. And the, 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 they, they literally began from the perspective that neoclassical economics gives them, that capitalism is this fantastically flexible system that can handle any dilemma, you know, just hit, hit demand and the demand curve will move and hit supply and the supply curve will move and you get a new equilibrium and ipso facto everything's wonderful. That mentality meant they simply couldn't comprehend the idea that there were physical limits to production. So they began from the perspective that it can't be a serious problem and therefore they assumed that it wasn't a serious problem and that's what they've done. They're at the, if, if their assumptions are right, there's no problem. If their assumptions are wrong, we're dead. And their assumptions yeah. are wrong, they're manifestly wrong. So th that, that mind, I've been losing my track of I thought of it because I'm so angry about this stuff. But what, <laughs> what it means is that they're, they're just completely the wrong sort of people, the wrong mindset to understand what we face. And the people will be most surprised by the collapse of capitalism, the people who've caused it, and they will be neoclassical economists. So in your book, Steve, you wrote, the new paradigm will be fundamentally monetary in contrast mm -hmm. to the false moneyless barter model that underlies neoclassical economics. Acknowledge that the economy is a complex system, not an equilibrium system. Be consistent with the fundamental fundamental physics known as the laws of thermodynamics. 
be grounded in empirical realism rather than the fantasy of as if assumptions about reality and be based on the techniques of system dynamics and related uh, non-equilibrium analytic approaches. So you would like to see economics take a much more scientific approach, I think. So tell us, this is so important. Yeah, definitely, definitely far more scientific. Um, uh, it, it hits a whole range of different areas, but for example, it fundamentally says production is only possible, of course, if energy is an input. And I didn't get involved in ecological economics until after I felt I'd made a significant contribution to it. And that was a very simple insight that nothing can be produced without energy, which means that the way that economists had, when they occasionally considered energy, and they didn't do it very often, what they would do is say energy is another factor of production. So they'd say, well, there's labour and there's capital and there's energy, and you add the three together and you get output. Um, or do you multiply, in the mathematical form, that you multiply the three together and you get output. And that would uh, portray the contribution of energy as being relatively trivial because energy is only about three to five percent of, of the of GDP. And therefore, you can say, well, if we lose energy, we only use three to five percent of GDP. Now, ironically, even somebody who's as detestable as Larry Summers came out and said how stupid that would be. But he couldn't explain why it was stupid. He literally said, we don't know why it would be wrong, but obviously this would be stupid. If we lost 80% of electricity, uh, we, we wouldn't just lose three or 4% of the economy. The whole economy would shut down. What, what I did was the mathematics to explain that. So when you say, uh, and then the vision that I had, of, it was quite, quite, I still vividly remember when I first got the insight, walking through a friend's house in Paris. This is, and a friend was, Robert Ayers is one of the main non-economists who's tried to make economists realise the importance of energy. Bob's house was full of sculptures. And I'm walking back from the bathroom and the little thought pops in my mind, labour without energy is a corpse. Capital without energy is a sculpture. So rather than saying you've got three factors of production, labour and capital and energy, which you all treat on an equal footing, what instead you have to say is capital uses energy as an input. Labor uses energy as an input, and therefore, even if they're only you know three or four percent of the economy, if you don't have energy input into machinery, if you don't have energy input into humanity, into laborers, you'll get zero output. So that insight was what enabled me to make a positive contribution. And then I read the neoclassical stuff and saw how dreadful it was, and realized just how what a serious dilemma we now face. But that then means your production starts from the physical foundations of, of thermodynamics. We, when you take when you use energy to produce output, you 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 must have waste. Uh, the only way to avoid waste is to produce at, in, in a region in, in space where the temperature is absolute zero, and there is no such region. And where we are on the planet, we're working at about three hundred degrees Celsius above absolute zero. So there's just an enormous amount of waste energy in that sense. Uh, and then also, of course, there's waste material and we dump that waste material back into the environment. And then that feeds back into how productive we can be. And as we also exploit the physical environment, nothing can be reduced without matter as well. We must have raw materials coming in to enable production to happen. As we might run those down, we get lower and lower grade 
uh, minerals, which means our production gets caught by that. All these physical things become an essential part of how you think about modeling the economy. And you can do the modeling. This is what I've been showing as well. I've got a, 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 a talk I gave last week, in fact, on an energy and matter-based model of production. So this, if this had been our foundation, and we, we could have got there if we'd started with the physiocrats, if that had been our foundation, we would always have known that we must generate waste. That waste must um, uh, to, to reduce the capacity to produce. Um, we will run out of resources, et cetera, et cetera. Th those foundations would have enabled us not to be where we are now. Yeah, that's a fantastic explanation. Now, I, I see we had a yeah, comment from Lynn. Yeah, um, so so Lynn has said it. I've also got a question, which which requires us to change tack a, a little bit, Steve. So um, I'll put this into a little bit of context for you. I mean, um, when we're talking about Scottish independence, the issue is around the currency that we should yeah. use. And that's how we kind of phrase it. But what we really mean is whose currency and, and what do we do with it? So uh -huh. we've got a question from um, fr from John here. And I think I'd just like to kind of change that question slightly to say, mm. because it's such a big question, what's the mm. difference between Scotland being a currency issuer, having its own currency, and a currency user, either using the British pound or the euro? Could you give us a, a brief summary of, of how those two different uh, positions are likely to affect Scotland as an independent country? Yeah, well, if, you, if you're a currency um, user as a government, then you have to finance yourself through taxation. You can't finance government activity through money creation. So consequently, you can't afford to run a deficit. Or if you do run a deficit, you very rapidly have to borrow money uh, and pay interest on it, et cetera, et cetera. These are all the dilemmas that mainstream economics thinks actual currency issuing governments also face. They're completely wrong. A currency issuing government, which you know, the UK is one, uh, America is another, Australia, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. A currency issuing government actually creates its own money. It should run a deficit. If it runs a deficit, what it's doing is creating money for the private sector. And that actually makes the private sector work better because one of the great dilemmas of a monetary system, a, a system based on uh, money as a, as, a, as a claim on somebody else, money is fundamentally uh, an, ob uh, uh, an obligation somebody else owes to you. Uh, in that world, the sum of all obligations is zero. If you look at the the, the equity, um, if, if you look at your own personal worth in terms of financial assets, not including things like your house, but your house is an asset for you and not a liability for anybody else. So I'm talking about you know, things like uh, debt, uh, shares at par value and so on. The sum of all those is zero. Uh, your financial claim on somebody else is your asset, it's their liability. If you add them all up, you get zero. Now, in that world, if because the banking sector has to function with positive equity, so a bank whose assets are less than its liabilities is bankrupt and has to fall, the banking sector must have positive equity. Because it has positive equity, that means the remainder of the society has negative equity. Okay? Now, that negative equity, when you look at your own personal situation and see you're in negative equity, nobody likes that. We prefer having... We prefer having more claims on the rest of the world than the rest of the world has on us. So that motivates us to go and borrow from banks and gamble on the value of non-financial assets now, things like shares and houses, driving up their price level, the borrowed money causing that increase in price. And we think we're doing well because, hey, if we sold our house tomorrow, we'd have all this money. 
but only works if only a tiny minority of us actually do that. So a huge part of the speculation and the gambling that we do is comes out of having negative equity. So the, the way to make a, a monetary system function is to say, well, is there somebody in that system that can actually cope with negative equity? And the answer is yes, there is, it's the government. If the government has negative net equity, meaning the government owes more to other people than other people owe to the government, the government can cope with that because it's a money creator. Okay? So if the government does that, if the government runs a deficit, what it's doing by running a deficit is putting more money in people's bank accounts. And it's then possible for everybody, the banking sector, the non-banking public and so on, to be in positive equity because the government's in negative equity. And that's sustainable for the government, A, because it produces the money that's part of how we actually settle our transactions, and also because when you think in terms of non-financial assets, what's the value of Scotland? What's the land of Scotland? It's the climate, it's everything about Scotland that's not owned by individuals, and, 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 and it's the overall capacity of the Scottish government. That, that's not part of this financial asset calculation. So a nation-state can cope with that negative equity. By coping with the negative equity, it creates the money that the private sector can turn over and have a, a functioning capitalist economy. And if you don't have it, you're up ship creek without a paddle because you've got a tax to get the money out and so on. So you have to have your own currency. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's Sorry. been clear for. I hope that's clear for 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 John. Uh, those very distinct differences, and that should help you. He said that you know he has that conversation daily. So the pound and the, and the euro, when we're talking about what's the exchange rate and how easy it is to spend, mm -hmm. that is just a tiny, tiny. And, and, and part of, of the of what you have to discuss it's really about what you can do with that money and the role that the government plays in the system where there's so much money moving around the system so fundamentally the difference between a shared uh, a shared currency like scotland would have in a currency union with the united kingdom is very mm. different from your own currency and um, karen do you want to add to that yeah, I think um, also something you bring up in the book as well is the the belief in the loanable funds model. Now, yeah. you know, I, I came late to economics. You know, I really started studying it in two thousand and eighteen, and you know, I think most pe most people are, are unaware of really how things function, and the, you know, the currency issuer is unrestricted, but also the banks to a certain extent are are as well. I think a lot of people still believe in loanable funds that mm. uh, commercial banks. Uh, are relying on the savings of of the, the a section of their customers, and you know really uh, I understand now that um, they they you know they create uh, loans just by double entry bookkeeping, and mm. uh, they, they do have to have a certain amount of reserves, and there's there, there are kind of legal limits on that as well. But essentially, they don't need to have those reserves to loan out money. And understanding that the central bank is kind of similar, but the central bank licenses the commercial banks so the commercial banks to a great extent are are agents of, of this the central bank as well so i think the, the loanable funds model's got an awful lot to answer for as well and that's that's taught in all economic courses still isn't it it is and it, it, i mean it, it, this garbage i mean it's simplistic nonsense it's childish when you look at it and it's an embarrassment that people think they're professionals write this stuff in the first place because when you look at the double entry bookkeeping accounting, loanable funds is only possible if all loans by banks are in cash or negotiable instruments. So if you go to a bank and you want to buy a house and they say, oh, that's great, you need a million pounds for it, here's, uh, you know, 10,000, uh, 100, you know, 
um, hundred quid notes. Um, it's nonsense. You don't you, you don't get a a barrel of a welfare of cash when you come out of a bank loan and whack it in a in a in a uh, you know a, an armoured vehicle and take it back to the person you're buying and give them the cash. They simply put an amount in your deposit account. And then that amount in your deposit account, you can transfer that to the person you're buying the house from. That's the actual mechanics. And consequently, the, it's not the case that banks lend out savings. Banks create savings, as we call them, by creating debt. And in, in that sense, you have two money creators in the economy. Banks who create money by lending out more than they get back in loan repayments. And government that creates money by running it, uh, spending more than its take back in taxes. And... Once you understand that, you get a completely different perspective on whether you should have a large amount of private debt. Private debt far exceeds government debt, and that's a bad thing. Uh, and you also get a totally different perspective on the government's role. It shouldn't be trying to balance its books. It should be running a large enough deficit to enable the private sector to not feel con uh, compelled to go and borrow money. Yes, the government debt is your surplus. And that's one reason I designed Minsky, my software package Minsky. So I'll make a plug for it here. It's open source. It's free. If you go to SourceForge and the website SourceForge and search for Minsky, you'll find it. It's very easy to sit down with Minsky and, and spend a bit of time building a couple of interlocking double entry tables showing the bank's perspective, the Treasury, the central bank, private sector and so on. And you'll rapidly see that loanable funds doesn't make sense and that banks create money by lending, that government creates money by spending. And that's the understanding we should have. And that bloody model should be thrown in the garbage bin along with the people who teach it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, again, I've got loads more questions. I'm just going to check back with William. Do we have any more from the audience? Any more questions from the audience, William? Uh, yeah, we, we've we've got one. Where it might be a quick answer, but um, is, is there any country that does not have an operable currency? Well, you know, any, I mean, this is where I differ in modern monetary theory, by the way. Modern monetary theory argues that a trade deficit is a good thing. You know, it should be, you know, imports are a, a benefit and exports are a cost. I think that's nonsense. Um, so if you have a, a country which is running a large balance of payments deficit, so it's importing more than it's exporting, it's doing that chronically, at some point that country will be forced to issue bonds in foreign currency, not in its own currency, and therefore it's dysfunctional. And that's countries like Argentina and um, and Venezuela and uh, Zimbabwe, all the ones that are taken as examples of, you know, you can't allow the government to create too much money. It's the trade deficit that puts them in that situation. So one of the things which, which Keynes wanted to do back at the uh, Bretton Woods Agreement was have an international currency, which was not a national not a country's currency, it wasn't the dollar or the pound. He wanted to be a, a made-up currency called the Bancor. He wanted that linked to the size, issues, issuing a Bancor linked to the size of each national economy. And he wanted a set of rules in place such that the maximum trade deficit or surplus of any individual country would be no more than 2% of GDP. Now, instead, you look at where we are now, we have countries running a 10% of GDP surplus, countries like China, Japan, Germany, uh, the, the Netherlands, Sweden, these are all running enormous trade surpluses. And because they're running a trade surplus of that scale, the rest of the world is running a trade deficit with them. And that sets up part of the crazy mechanics we have as well. So I would want to have a world we'd like one Keynes tried to design where the maximum trade deficit was of the order of 2% of GDP. And therefore, you wouldn't have the constraints that come out of running a trade deficit where you're forced to eventually start issuing debt in 
uh, something not in your own currency and thereby suffering a dysfunctional currency. Thank this is a that. pet. This is a pet subject of mine, and I, I ask everyone about this. Um, should all treasuries stop issuing bonds? Are they a cop out for politicians who are afraid to tax? No, no. In fact, when you look at the, this is again why I recommend using Minsky. And you could do this, Karen. You've, you've got the, you've got the, the smarts to get this done pretty rapidly. If you model um, a, a government deficit using Minsky, then what you'll find is the deficit itself creates reserves and creates. Uh, deposits. Now, if you think about the, the, the private banking sector in that situation, they are, in that case, they are being what you were called earlier, the agent of the government. So because they are, because they enable individuals to have deposit accounts, then that enables uh, us to have, you know, interpersonal financial transactions. But the banks are carrying reserves. Now, the reserves are no interest. So in that situation, when the government says we're going to sell your treasury bonds, the treasury bonds are bought using the excess reserves that are created by the deficit. And with those bonds, you are now swapping reserves which earn no interest and can't be traded as a bank for bonds which do earn interest and can be traded as a bank. And that's actually, that's well, you, you're being rewarded effectively, you're being an agent of the government. So it it's, it's makes sense to offer the, the banks a positive rate of interest on the bonds. It makes sense to issue the bonds. When you look at in terms of what the bonds actually do for the government itself, the bonds, the sale of bonds means that the uh, when you look at the central bank accounts, the, de the deficit is financed by the treasury spending more than it's taking back in tax, which means its account at the central bank can turn negative. But the bond sales, and you need bond sales both for the deficit and for the interest on bonds, those bond sales mean that the treasury account can remain constant. It can be made at a positive level it doesn't have to be positive it could be zero uh, with the flow of money going through the whole system but it means that the treasury doesn't run a overdraft at the central bank so uh, it, it's got a functional role at two ends one is the treasury doesn't look like it's in an overdraft and and the second is that it, it rewards the banks for being agents of the government in enabling private bank accounts to function so i think the bonds should be sold but we should understand the bonds don't enable the deficit. The deficit enables the bonds. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is kind of also why I'm uh, suspicious of their 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 um, their function. But the other thing that is really interesting to me is you propose a redefinition of shares in your book. Can you mm. explain the how and why of that to us? Yeah, I think one of the one of the reasons we have uh, asset price bubbles is because it's people are being driven by a fear of being in negative equity to own buy non-financial assets and drive up the prices by leverage and then think, well, okay, they're now in positive equity because of this huge asset bubble we've caused in shares and housing. And that is incredibly negative and incredibly destructive for the real strengths of capitalism. So I would want to have a way of setting up um, shares and indeed in, in house purchases as well so that we don't get asset bubbles. Now, when you look at what causes share prices to change, a large part of it is the money people borrow to buy shares, margin loans. And that leverage then gives us these high asset prices, but that also is, leads to both booms and slumps. So I want to redefine shares in such a way that shares have the function people actually think they already have, and that is to raise capital. Now, when you look at it, uh, there are so many shares that are being retired by people 
by, by firms borrowing money to buy back their own shares, that in the aggregate, the stock market is almost a destroyer of monetary capital rather than a creator. So I want to set up shares in such a way that most of the activity for the share market becomes creating new capital for new ventures. And the idea would be that when you first issue a share and you, for, for the first buyer of the share, that share has effectively an infinite life. But after a number of sales, I wouldn't say just one, maybe five or 10 sales, the share then reverts to what I call a jubilee share, where it will expire after a, a defined term, maybe 50 years, could be a long, long period. And I mean, whoever is buying that share then is necessarily buying an annuity. They're not buying it in the belief it can be code, go to the stratosphere and be worth a fortune because in 50 years' time it'll be worth nothing. So if you buy it, you're buying it for long-term investment for the cash flow out of the dividends. And in the, in the so the, the idea of the Jubilee shares to get rid of this the huge speculative level, I mean, price speculative level of the stock market and instead have speculation over whether a particular venture is going to be a successful idea or not. So raise capital for corporations through the share market and then stop speculation on secondary values causing the bubbles we see today. Yeah, I think that, yeah. that's a fascinating perspective. That And that goes back to, I suppose, the average length that people used to hold shares back in mm. the 60s and the 70s and 80s. It was, you know, months, years. Yeah. Now shares on average are held for sometimes kind of milliseconds. Um, you know, so it really does change. Karen got her pet question in around bonds. I've got one for you around one of my yeah. areas, which is quantitative, uh, quantitative easing. Um, mm. Uh, so I've got a specific question here. Uh, last year, the Scottish Government Finance Secretary, Kate Forbes, said, would it be such a great loss not to be able to conduct quantitative easing? And for daring to ask that, she was roundly criticised by members of the opposition and some of the press. I wondered what you thought of that. Well, I think quantitative easing is a very dangerous tool because it's un unlimited capacity of, this, of the central bank to buy non-financial assets off the both the banking sector and the non-bank public which mainly means off the shadow banking system so if you look at what's what's going on if if um, with quantitative easing it has two major elements to it first of all if we go back to the very first instance of it which not the first which japanese but say in america under bernanke um the bernanke promised in about 2009 to be on the buy side in bond dealings with the private banking sector to the tune of $80 billion a month, which is roughly $1 trillion per year. Now, the idea of that was to buy bonds across the whole um, yield curve from, you know, bonds in 30-day bonds right up to 30-year bonds and drive down interest rates in general. But what it also meant was that you were creating a large amount of money in the shadow banking sector. That's the last place I want to see more money. I want to see money in the real economy. So the only thing quantitative easing can do is drive down bank holdings of bonds and give them massive excess reserves, which is what we've seen, and also drive down the holdings of bonds, uh, both you know government bonds and mortgage-backed securities and so on, in the shadow banking sector and effectively encourage them to buy other assets, uh, which includes shares, uh, anything else which can be driven up in price. So I think it's, it's, it's complicated. I haven't worked out the whole dynamics. I've got a, a muck around article that I put up on my blog post just for patrons only on this issue recently about the buying pressure that this puts on shadow banks. And I'm hypothesizing that means that, that the non-bank, because, because shadow banks 
and banks which aren't regulated by the Federal Reserve or financial institutions not regulated by the Financial Reserve, so insurance companies, pension funds and so on, they can buy these shares. Uh, what that means is you have a continuous inflation in the price of the share market when it's already massively inflated by private activity. So I think this is incredibly destructive. Actually, when it first began, I called it a pact with the devil because once you sign up for quantitative easing, it's like signing on the dotted line uh, with, with Mephistopheles. You know, you can't say, I'm sorry, I want to renegotiate the contract when you've sold your soul to the devil. And that's what I see QE is doing. Fantastic. And and a follow-up question. Did, did Australia and New Zealand, did their central banks do anything different um, during um, COVID compared to what the Fed was doing and what the ECB and what the Bank of England were doing? No, pretty much not. I mean, they just went along. Um, uh, the, the central bank was had a fairly minor role in the whole thing. The real role is the Treasury because when, when you have something like COVID, and this is what I argued back when it first began back in you know, February, March of 2020, the, the private sector can't handle a pandemic. Okay? A pandemic means commerce collapses. So the only way you can stop the capitalist system collapsing during a pandemic is massive government spending, no other, no other option. And that's what should have been done and what was done to some degree by every country in the world. So a huge part of the so-called increase in savings we've seen is the huge deficits the government's run, with, and that's partly why the recovery, inverted commas, from this downturn has been so strong, is because so much government money is being created, there's plenty of spending power, and that's actually what's causing, again, the government debt is your surplus, causing a huge boom in the private, private sector. Um, so it's the tre what the Treasury does that matters, and again, this shows that the Treasury can create money effectively without, without limit which it needs to do in theories of crises like pandemics and, global, and world wars. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the hey. other thing that's, that's happening right now is that um, the banks are responding to uh, increase in prices by raising interest rates. What do you think about that? Nonsense, because the, the, this, the whole, this again is a neoclassical way of thinking. And it is, you can blame actually John Hicks for this because Keynes came along with an idea saying what determines people's willingness to invest as expectations of profit. Whereas what Hicks said is, oh, it's about what determines their willingness to invest is the rate of interest because their expectations are perfect. They can see the future. You know, we're talking, we've got gods here running capitalism. So they know the future cash flow. So what you can do is vary the interest rate and that'll vary how much uh, uh, investment occurs. And then through the multiplier, that'll determine the level of economic activity. So if you put up interest rates, you reduce economic activity and that can control things like inflation. You can't control inflation when it's due to a breakdown of the supply chain. This is simply, it's more expensive to make all this stuff. And if the firms who are producing it are going to stay in business, they've got to put prices up. Uh, it's not the sort of thing you can control using interest rates. In fact, you're likely to make it worse because you pull out demand out of the economy. And again, contrary to what mainstream economics argues, as production falls, costs rise. They have the opposite attitude. They say as, as production increases, costs rise. No, they don't. When you look at the cost of a real corporation, this is the work that's been done by, again, non-Orthodox economists for a century now and ignored by the mainstream. Marginal costs fall with increasing output. Therefore, they'll rise with falling output and equally fixed costs necessarily rise with less output, fixed costs per unit. So if you have something like interest rates being put up, that's going to reduce demand and cause prices to rise. Not going to fight. Yeah, William, do you have 
<laughs> I, I think yes, William had a question I, there, did you? Yeah, I, 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 probably a final question for me is, um, you know, you, you're in Australia, a much bigger country and a much bigger economy than Scotland. Um, but we can look, you know, a few hundred kilometres south of you and we've got New Zealand, which is a similar size, similar uh, looking economy, um, which seems to be a very successful economy. Now, we can look across the globe for Scotland to find similar economies. We you know we look at the, the, the countries in the north and some of the some of the similar sized countries in Central Europe. But um, if you're looking dispassionately without any kind of dog in the fight and you look at an independent Scotland, what does that economy look like? Is it um, what some people who argue against independence would say would be a potential basket case economy? Or is that an economy that's very similar to other economies in terms of its likely success? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm, I must admit I'm ambivalent on the whole thing. I mean, I'm not... Um, there, is, there is a huge issue in economies of scale for large, large uh, productive uh, components of an economy. So if you go to a small economy, you can't get those economies of scale and you then have a danger that you won't be able to produce goods you need to produce domestically, so you'll be importing them. And therefore, you have to import cars, import computers... Etc. Etc. And that gives you a very large negative trade balance, and you've then got to balance that in some other fashion. Now, if you do it with oil, then you've got a real dilemma because at some point, frankly, oil has to stop. I think we should have stopped oil already. Um, so that's one potential hole. Agriculture is another possibility, but uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we've got enormous agricultural potential in Scotland. Uh, so what it means is you've got to look at the technology. Sorry, am I right or wrong? No, sorry, we've we've got great agriculture in Scotland. Also, as well, we've got huge, huge fishing grounds. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that's that. You've got to look. You, you, in my point of view, you've got to be. You've got to look at it and say, can we maintain at least a, a, a zero trade balance? Okay. If if your answer is okay, feasibly we can, then you can consider going on your own. And then you know, given I mean, if I was if I was married to Boris Johnson, I'd be looking for a divorce too. Okay. I've got to agree. And like, I, I've learned enough about the English and the, the bizarre politics with Scotland uh, over my time that I lived there, so I can understand the sentiment of getting away from the bloody English. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I certainly have a sympathy for that. Um, uh, and, and, and trying to convince the Tories to behave in a different fashion, well, good bloody luck. Uh, I think they're still behaving like William the Conqueror. Yeah, so, but on a purely economic, a purely economic basis, um, looking at you know successful countries like New Zealand and abroad, is there anything that would say to you Scotland wouldn't be able to be a success? No, no, I must say that it, 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 so long as you can find a way of, of, of maintaining at least a, a close to a zero trade balance, then you can do your own thing. The, the problems are economies of scale. If you look at New Zealand, for example, it's not going to be important. It's not going to be producing cars, for example. But when you take a look at uh, New Zealand's performance versus Australia, much bigger country not too far away, the Atlas of Economic Complexity shows that New Zealand has a more a sophisticated manufacturing sector than Australia has. Um, so it's possible to do, uh, you know, to go your own on a small scale in the sense that Sweden has and Norway has and so on, and the Netherlands. There are these smaller countries that have been quite successful, Switzerland. Uh, but you've, you've got to have that emphasis upon uh, your own productive capacity, uh, you know, high tech. Uh, but, but again, look, we're, we're heading into climate change. We're heading into a serious climate crisis as well. What is that going to do? Um, 
the, these issues are incredibly important and I don't think there are easy answers to them. So my, my overall bias is I wish you could bash the Tories overhead, put them in a boat and send them off to Calais where they came from, um, you know, send them back to the Normans and get some sensible policy at the, at the aggregate scale of the island of England. But uh, I can understand the frustration the Scots have with the behaviour of the English for all this time and the, the desire to go your own and be your own country. Uh, I can sympathise with it. I just know that it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, the, the um, a really uh, obvious example that I could point out to you just now is that we have currently in uh, Scotland, we've got 25% of the uh, underwater turbine energy for the whole of the EU. So mm. we're obviously 5 million people and the EU's 500 million people. We also have... 25% of the EU's offshore wind energy. Now, oh. uh, if you look at the transmission charges, the transmission charges in Scotland are much, much more expensive than they are in London. So, you know, the, the, the issue in the UK as a whole is that really the UK is being run for London. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not even being That's run for Cornwall or North Yorkshire or Wales. It's being run for London in a lot of yep. respects and that big problem with that but getting back to your book you also state that the economy and this is really important to me as well i think people really need to understand this you state that the economy is a complex system that oscillates yeah. indefinitely and cannot converge into an equilibrium can you illustrate hmm. that in a simple terms for our viewers okay oh, simple illustration um fundamentally uh, if you're in equilibrium, you're dead, okay? Um, because equilibrium means a state of no change or a state of... of uh, and, uh, when the neoclassicals do it, they, they, they ignore the fact that they're talking about a growing system and they talk about, like, a, a state of, of no change. Uh, a real... All interesting systems are dynamic. All interesting systems have cycles. Um, and trying to eliminate cycles, which is part of the neoclassical mindset, is like trying to eliminate your own body cycles. You'd eliminate them. The best way to do that is to cure yourself and then jump into uh, a rocket and get blasted into outer space and try to find a point at absolute zero. It's just an unrealistic model of the real world. The real world is dynamic. Uh, you're, being, you're forever having energy coming in from the outside, which is driving the whole system. So the real world in general is in a state of being far from equilibrium. And, and that... Uh, therefore just eliminates the neoclassical way of thinking. It's completely irrelevant to a dynamic growing system. So you, you, um, you know, throw equilibrium in the garbage bin uh, because in, in any interesting system, you'll be out of equilibrium and if it gets into equilibrium, it's dead. Yeah, I think that's fantastic explanation and 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 illustrates that you know that the economy is it's it's a pulsating living thing. Oh. It's, you know, it's 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 moving and doing different things all the time, and politicians really just have to be trying to manage that uh, for the population as 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 kindly as possible for people. And, and, and we have to understand that as well. That there's a, a really a brilliant game you can call uh, play called the systems game, and we're mm. going to do it at our um, roadshows coming up. And basically, you get 15, 16 people around a circle, and they each in their head follow two people, and they don't tell who they're following. And obviously, there's just this absolute you know chaos 
of mm. people trying to just follow and move around and bumping into and bashing each other. And that's an example of a very, very simple, complex system. And the economy is incredibly successful. And I do think that we look for the easy answers. And unfortunately, at the moment, we're finding we're still finding these easy answers in, a, in, in, a, in an, an economic discipline that clearly isn't based on any form of reality and steve all the work that you've done since the 70s and um, and um w recently that, that we've been trying to highlight is, is is absolutely incredible and hugely influential and we really appreciate your time uh, that you've given us on a couple of occasions now to help people especially in scotland understand a lot more about what economics and economists have got wrong and how we can do things differently thank you so much for your time you're welcome and uh, keep up the fight thank you for helping <laughs>